1 John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at just the first three verses. And so John writes this, he continues his letter, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This text, these three verses that are, show up here in the middle of the letter of 1 John, these are, you can think of these as sort of being a recentering. We'll talk in just a few minutes about where we've been in 1 John and what's been circling around, what John's been, um, I guess, addressing, you could say, at the first half of this letter, uh, specifically the presence of these antichrists and false teaching in, in the midst of this church family and how it's unsettled them and, and he wants them to have hope. And so he brings this hope to them, these de- this declaration of hope that's true of them. And so some of what's going on with them is what's going on with us pretty much day in and day out, depending on what your, how your day goes or what sort of decisions you're facing. Like a lot of times, whatever's going on in life, whatever your specifics may be, we just want to be able to make sense of it. We want to look at it and know why is this happening, for what purpose is it happening, how's it going to be used, how's it going to you know, bring about my best, or is it going to bring about my best, or you know, the questions go on and on and on. And I was reading an article, well, it's more of a, I guess, a blog post this week uh, by a woman named Brianna Weist. And she wrote an article uh, titled, Trying to Make Sense of Your Life is What's Actually Holding You Back. And so she had this to say about trying to make sense of your life. She said, trying to make sense of your life is trying to see if the old story checks out, if the person you once were would be happy with the life they lead today. You're looking for answers in people that don't exist. Clarity comes from doing, not thinking about doing. A good life comes from choosing to work with what you have, accepting that you don't always choose what you work with, but you're always given what you need to use, especially when you don't realize you need to use it. No idea what that means. And I've read it 10 times. I do not understand. I, as I read the whole article, this, I mean, that's the last thing she leaves us with in this article. And this article that she wrote, this blog post, she's wrestling with a perspective that doesn't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel and you're trying to make sense of life, essentially her takeaway is stop trying to make sense of life. Your hope is found in not trying to make sense of life. Does that sound super hopeful though? Like your hope is that you can stay busy enough not to worry about why the things are happening that are happening to you. Your hope is that you can keep your head down and make it through. Your hope is that the fact that there's not really a point to it won't infringe on your ability to enjoy it. That's just, I know for myself, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't, that doesn't cut it for me. I, I want to know that there's purpose to it. And I think about, I've, I've been a parent for seven and a half years. Uh, and as a parent for seven and a half years, very few of those days were spent being a primary caretaker, like one-on-one, one-on-two, now one-on-three. That happens very rarely. For my wife, it happens quite regularly. But on those days that that does happen, I want to know that there is purpose. (laughs) I want to know that this day has purpose. And some days that's challenging. For you, it might be some days at work. 
Does this have purpose? When it's been weeks and you haven't heard from your kids, is there purpose? How do I make sense of this? How am I supposed to understand this? How am I supposed to let this influence me or prevent this from influencing me? And you and I are constantly trying to figure out how do we make sense of our lives? What is our hope and what's going on in life right now? And as followers of Jesus, the gospel confirms to us that we have hope, that hope that we celebrate with coral jackets on Easter, that kind of hope. The hope that says that there is meaning, that you can make sense of your life. And so as we think about the hope that's put before us here, and we're looking at that this morning, as Christians, we do have hope, and the hope that we have makes sense of our life, but it goes beyond that. Not only does it make sense of our life, it also, it also confirms to us what a beautiful future we have, that our story continues, and it's a beautiful continuation of a story. And also on top of that, by knowing that our story continues and that it's beautiful and knowing that, that there is sense and meaning in this life, that knowledge, that hope transforms the way we live right now. So as we think about what John's going to share with us, it does help us make sense of our lives. It helps confirm to us that our future is a good future, and it also transforms how we live right now, not just anticipating the future, but leveraging this moment that we've been given. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So first, what is our hope? If you look at verse 3, it says this, it says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's that first half of that sentence. It says, everyone who hopes in him. Our hope is a person. Our hope is not an idea, an ethic, a system of beliefs. It's a person. Jesus. And so we hope in Jesus. And by hoping in Jesus, what we're doing is we're hoping in the one who has made a statement earlier in this section true of us. Look with me, if you will, at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Because we hope in Jesus, what Jesus has done for us makes us God's children now. We don't hope that we can be good enough to be his kids. We don't hope that we can maintain our kids' status with him. We don't hope that we can make ourselves seem attractive to him so that he will want us for his kid. We hope because Jesus accomplished our salvation and our salvation brought about our adoption. And we are children now of the Father. And so we have this hope in Jesus that he has accomplished for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and as such, we are changed. We are truly now children of God. And so as we think about this, the, the fact that we are now children of God, it is the, the knowledge, the reality of being children of God that makes sense of our life right now. The hope we have in Jesus that has made us children of God makes sense of our life right now. As I said, the, the antichrists and false teachers are sort of circulating and have left this church and have essentially unsettled this church family that John's writing to so that they're not sure if they actually have a relationship with Jesus. They're not sure if what they heard was enough or if they need to do more or have a certain kind of knowledge that they don't yet have or have a certain depth of spirituality that they don't have. Everything is unsettled for them. The context of their life, their life living in Asia Minor and their life living as a church family, nothing seems stable anymore. And so into that, John writes, you are children of God now. Anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are right now a children of God. 
All this stuff that goes on in your life is the context in which you live as a child of God, not the evidence that speaks to you being his child or not being his child. And so John speaks that kind of comfort, that strong comfort to these followers of Jesus. And that's a good word for us too because our context, the context of our life oftentimes unsettles us. And the reality is the context of life, the things that are going on in your life influence you. They influence you to the degree, to to the, maybe not degree, but the way you interpret what's going on in your life is the way you let what's going on in your life shape you. And you and I are constantly interpreting what's going on in our life, in all the different spheres of our life. Whatever's going on out there starts to press in on me, and how I interpret it then dictates how it's going to affect me and shape me. That's true of everyone. Everyone who's living a life is living a life in which they're constantly interpreting how they're going to assess and understand and be influenced by their context. That's why we oftentimes we talk about, it, about by having like good days and bad days. Think about it this way. Let's say, let's think of one of the things, something, not the worst thing that's ever happened to you, but, you know, a not, a not good thing. Let's say you lost your job. You lost your job. Let's say that, that same thing happened on the day that the girl that you were dating said yes to marrying you early in the, in the day. The loss of your job is going to affect you in relation to something else that's going on in your life. Your perspective on your life is going to be different than if that same thing happened on the day that your dog died. You're, sh- you're going to engage and you're going to interpret your life differently based on these different principles that you have. Principle of I'm being loved or principle that things are going terribly for me means that this context affects me in this way and I interpret it in this way. Happens all the time. Now, interpretation, just to give you sort of some examples of the way that we're constantly having to interpret, uh, I was thinking about the way that we text message, if you text message, which is most of you. If you text message, and you've text messaged anyone that's male and anyone that's female, you know that there are, there are different uh, text etiquettes that exist. So Terry Andrews is one of our elders, and he just got his first smartphone a couple of months ago. And so he started texting me, and I started texting him. This is great. It's very convenient. The thing is, when Terry texts me, if I send him a question or something like that, his response to me is always, okay, yes, or no. No exclamation point, no smiley face, no anything else. And that's fine. I know that there is no subtext between me and Terry. That is just information being communicated. But that doesn't always work. I don't know if Terry texts Annette, his wife, or not. But if so, he may need to work on that a little bit. Because I, I was reading this article this week. This was written by a student, Molly Bradford, up at Michigan State University. She decided to write an article that she calls a guide, uh, so you can know how, uh, she says, how to tell if a girl is mad at you via text message. She wrote this for guys, <laughs> for men. All right, guys, this is how you know if a girl is mad at you via text message. Here are five of the things you should watch for. If she uses the letter K as the entire response, she's mad at you. If she uses a capital K, don't come home. If she sends you anything that ends in a period, she's mad at you. If she says, I'm fine, we already knew she was mad at you. (laughs) If she says, ha ha, she doesn't want to talk to you, she doesn't think you're funny, and she's mad at you. (laughs) And just as a word of caution, if she sends you any one-word response, 
it's safe to assume she's mad at you. You and I interpret all the time. And so when we get these text messages or emails or letters, we're constantly interpreting, trying to figure out how am I supposed to respond to this? How should I feel about this communication? We treat life, the context of life, like a giant text message from God to us. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to interpret this? What does God think about me? He let this happen. He didn't put this, you know, people didn't smile at me much today. You know, my, my wife, whatever, my husband, whatever, my kids, whatever, my job, whatever, whatever it is. We're like, oh, there's some subtext there. And we try to let our context dictate what we think God, how he views us and what he thinks about us. Now, I want to think about a classic example from Scripture that would show us that that is idiotic. There was a man who had a wife and children and he had close friends and he started to lose everything. He lost his children. He lost all of his possessions. He lost his health. He lost his wife. And his friends told him, you've done something horribly wrong. God's angry at you. Your context is to be interpreted as you've made a huge mistake. You've sinned somewhere. Something's wrong. God's trying to teach you a lesson. And his name was Job. And Job was the most righteous man on the earth. You and I cannot look at our context and decide my context teaches me what God thinks about me. Our context is only ever the unfolding narrative in which we live as a always forever from this point forward child of God. Our status with him is never changed. We never lose our sonship or our daughtership from him. That's because our, God intends for our identity Understanding that we are children of God, to have that identity in mind, that is supposed to be the guiding principle of all of life's context interpretation for you and me. Everything that happens to me happens to a child of God, not to a probationary status that may be a child of God. Everything that happens to me happens while I am his child, and it is always for my good, and it's always for his glory, no matter if I can make sense of it now or if I'll make sense of it in the future or if I'll never make sense of it. Context does not determine my relationship. It is the backdrop of my relationship. Now, there is a nuance I want to share with you, and that is that the world is sinfully broken, which you already know. And sometimes our context includes consequences of our own sin, and it also includes consequences from the sins of others and consequences from the general brokenness of the world. And what I mean by this is, as you're looking at your context, there are going to be certain things that happen in your life, and you're going to know, as a, as a child of God, that is a consequence of an action or a choice that you made. We're tempted to think, God's punishing me for that choice. In one sense, that's true, but only in the sense that a father punishes a child as a form of correction. God will never judge you as his child. He has already put judgment on another for you. And so in your context, even in the midst of the, of the consequences of your own sin, you are no less his child. Those consequences are actually evidence that you are his child. But when you and I look at the consequences of our own sin and think that God is punishing us and judging us as opposed to punishing us and correcting us, we assume that there's wrath of his that's being poured out on me. And God has only ever one time poured wrath out on a child of his. And that was on the cross. And that was all of it. So in whatever your context is, and you, have, you and I are sinners, so we're always going to be walking through 
issues in which we are being convicted of sin and experiencing consequences of our sin, even as we become more and more like Jesus, we're not perfect, we won't be until glory. Know that when God corrects you, he corrects you because he loves you, not because he doesn't want you or not because you're not close to his heart. He loves you. Now, other times you'll be like Job and you'll be experiencing the sinful consequences of others' choices or of just a general brokenness in the world. And in that sense, you look, Jesus, Jesus took the punishment for, for, the, for our sin. You're not being punished in that context, but think about what you are doing. If you are innocent and are experiencing the consequences of the sins of others, who does that picture? Jesus. Anytime you and I experience consequences for sins that are not ours, we show the world Jesus. So don't you understand that the hardship of our context, whether it's of my own making or of someone else's making, makes much of God every time. When he corrects me, his mission for me in my life is to make me look more like Jesus. And when he brings me into an experience of the consequences of someone else's sin, it's because he has a mission for me to take the beauty of sacrificial Jesus into the life of somebody else. Our context is broken because we are sinners living in a sinful world. And in no way, shape, or form does that get in the way of God accomplishing his purpose of making himself more famous and showing how glorious his grace is in reforming us and then using us to, to picture Jesus. So our context is always backdrop. It's never supposed to be interpreted as the evidence of God's relationship with us. And the ways, that I, ways I want you to think about this and sort of practically speaking, it means that whatever your job situation is right now, that's a context in which you can make much of Jesus. If you end up having whatever your illness may be that you have, let's say that you're sick and you have an illness, some illnesses are the result of sinful choices that we make, some illnesses are not. Regardless, we can make much of Jesus in those. Whatever's going on in your marriage, whatever's going on in your family, whatever's going on in your finances. Marriage, family, and finances, all three of those are chock full of sinners. And so you're experiencing the consequences of your own sin in your marriage and your spouse's sin and your sin in your family and your children's sin, your sin and your parents' sin. And then in finances, your selfishness shows up and there are consequences. But that context is a context in which much will be made of Jesus and you and I will be shaped to look more like him and the number of the children of God will continue to expand. I hope you understand this too, that, that Jesus can come back at any point. The only reason that the Father does not send Jesus right now is because the Father is patient and he desires more men, women, and children to be counted as children of God, not enemies of God. And so when you and I look at our context and it's hard and it's broken, you're a child of God in this context. And he has you here because others are not. And so we don't look at our context and say, God, why don't you love me and fix this? We look at our context and say, God, thank you for loving me. Let me take that love to someone else in this same context. We have to remember it's not about us. Our life is not about us. The things that are going on in our life are part of our story, but our story is a part of a much bigger story. And so the context, the backdrop, God's put us here right now so that we can make much of Jesus 
And so there can be more children at the end of this story. Now, I want to move on to verse 2. Verse 2 says this. Verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We have this, verse 2 has this sort of mystery woven into it, where you have the the Apostle John saying, what we are right now isn't what we're going to always be. And exactly how that's going to play out in the future, I do not know. But what I do know is that we'll be like Jesus and we'll have full access to Jesus. That's our future. And there's comfort for us in that and there's mystery but also security in that. I mean, think about why. Why is God being mysterious here? It goes back to the, what we just talked about a moment ago. We're so convinced that life is about us that we think that God owes us a, a snapshot of the future for us specifically. What exactly is my future going to look like? What exactly is it going to be like for me? How exactly am I going to enjoy whatever it's going to be? And we think in terms of me and me and me and me and me. Whereas what God tells us is, you don't need to worry about that. It's going to be better than you can imagine, and I don't want you to spend too much time imagining it right now. Because that's not the point. That's not why I have you here right now. This shows up in my life when I start planning for vacations. I like to plan for vacations between 18 and 24 months in advance. (laughs) And as I start to plan my, my vacations 18 to 24 months in advance, I go through these cycles. Cycles of where I essentially have a body in this moment but a mind months and months in advance. There are times where for me, planning my vacation becomes essentially biding my time here, saving my money and making my plans so that my real life can happen then. But then there are other times where the pendulum swings to a much healthier position and actually just knowing that a vacation is coming is actually really relaxing and it gives me rest. Sometimes like, I do a little research. I add something to the Evernote file that I've got started, and, and it's good. It's not all-consuming. It's not supposed to be all-consuming. We're not supposed to live in this moment only consumed with what will happen in that moment. The same thing happens to you and me when we get so fixated on what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. If God wanted us to experience what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, he'd just be back. He wants us to do something else right now. And it's not that we're not supposed to find comfort. It's not that we're not supposed to be encouraged. That's the whole point that John's making here. Here's very little details, but the details I'm going to share with you are, it's going to be amazing. You're going to be full and satisfied, and you can look forward to that day. But don't be distracted by it. Look forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus, but don't be distracted by it. Because I have you here now for my purposes. That's how God wants us to understand where he has us, when he has us. In the second half of the verse of verse 2, when he says, we shall know that we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's a promise that we will be made full and our experience in relationship to Jesus will be full. And there's, it's kind of a backhanded comfort that's woven into that that I want us to think through. When we're told that there's going to be this fullness of our experience of our restoration and the fullness of experience of our relationship with Jesus, that's good news, but that means we don't have it right now. We are fully children of God right now. He tells us that, beloved, we are children of God now. 
who we are in position and relationship to, to God is secure. Jesus has accomplished that. We will be no less God's child in the new heavens and the new earth than we are right now. But our experience then will be so much more full than it is right now. And I want the comfort, some of the comfort for you to be is, to find in this is the fact that when you look at your life and it doesn't feel like the fullness that you know that you're designed to enjoy, you are right. It isn't. And what we as followers of Jesus need to do is not pretend that life here is better than it is. Life here is purposeful. Life here is full of relationship, but it's not relational fullness in the experience with Jesus. And so we don't pretend that heaven is here. We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. And we need to have the freedom to tell someone, I don't want to pray, so will you pray for me? I don't want to cultivate a close relationship with Jesus because I'm angry. Will you pray for me? We are broken, and our relationship with Jesus is not experienced in its fullness, and we need the freedom, not to say that it's okay to live like that, but to look for help in the midst of that. And if you and I spend all of our time trying to pretend that life in a broken world is better than it is, we will burn out. Job's life was a train wreck. I want nothing like what Job had. I don't want any part of that. Honestly, guys, if I'm being totally honest with you, I'd rather not be the most righteous person in the world so that couldn't happen to me. It scares me that much. Context is hard. And hardship in life is hard. And we do our brothers and sisters and ourselves a disservice if we pretend like it's not. So the comfort for us is that it will not always be this way, but there's even more comfort because we're told, verse 3, in this hard life, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There are two ways you can take that verse. One is to say that if you have hope in Jesus, make yourself pure like Jesus is pure. Are we supposed to work out our own salvation? Are we supposed to participate with the Spirit in our sanctification? Yes, we are. But I think a, a more gospel-oriented understanding of what John is saying there Though it includes some of that, I think a more gospel understanding is to say that when we hope in Jesus, that hope changes us. When we rest in Jesus, that rest changes us. We start to look more and more like Jesus and love the things that Jesus loves and enjoy more and more of being his, a child of God, his brother or his sister, right here, right now, the more we rest in the fact that we need him. The more that we trust the fact that he's sufficient the more that we realize I am now a child of God because of what Jesus has done for me. So the call for you and me is, is not to try and make the best of what's going on here, not to try and make the best of every situation that we're given. I mean, that's not bad advice, but we will burn out. The call for us is to hope. Hope that comes from knowing you're already a child of God. Hope that comes from knowing that things are not always going to be this way. Hope from knowing that God is patient. He was patient and he waited on you and he brought you to a place of faith and he is continuing to be patient and so we can continue to be busy because he's continuing his work. And so when we look at our context, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate today because Jesus has accomplished what makes us children of God, we will never be more or less his child now if we, are, if we are in Christ. And we look forward to the day when we will experience that 
in its fullness, when we will be like him and see him like he is. But right now, let's hope in him. Be purified through that hope so that we can take that hope and see the family get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that this time next year, if Jason hasn't come back, folks who are outside the family will be inside the family and they will be counted as children of God as well. Let's pray.